I'm super excited about this interview today because it's all about research. Now, I have to admit, I never thought that I would develop a passion for research, yet here I am at the tail end of completing my doctorate. Research has become a huge part of my life, and when you meet fellow dyslexics who are researching in the field of dyslexia, I feel a sense of hope for the changes that are occurring within our community. Today's guest speaker is Professor Stephen McDonald. Stephen is a professor of social science at the University of Sutherland. He has published broadly in the areas of neurodiversity and social exclusion, including issues concerning diagnosis, educational disengagement, digital inclusion, crime, victimization, loneliness, and homelessness. Stephen is a fellow dyslexic and is an inspiration to me. And I hope through this podcast, you feel inspired too. Thank you so much for joining me my evening, your morning, uh, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us on the show. I'm so excited to be talking to you and particularly for my own selfish reasons of doing my doctorate at the moment, but also some of your work um, I've learned is very similar to what I'm trying to do in Australia around showcasing um, some of the challenges that those with dyslexia face. So I'm really, really excited to be talking to you today. And um, first of all, can I please ask you to give um, our listeners a little bit of a background uh, to yourself if they haven't heard of your work before? Uh, yes. Would you like us to give a background of me work or uh, first of all with me work? Yep. So I am uh, I'm Steve MacDonald. I'm a professor of social science, social science and I work at the University of Sunderland. Uh, and I work in a team uh, which very much draws on social theory, so it's influenced by sociology, but it actually brings together uh, different professionals, uh, different professional groups. So we have, we work within the team, we have psychologists, we have sociologists, we have criminologists, we have social workers, uh, we have social care specialists, and also people who uh, specialise in childhood development as well. My own research very much focuses on, well, my, my research started by focusing primarily on dyslexia and the adult experience of dyslexia. Obviously, uh, I have dyslexia myself, so that really influenced uh, my research. I started off within criminology, actually. I first of all trained in criminology. When I was studying my degree, disability didn't really appear within criminology. When I started doing my master's, uh, I came across a paper which illustrated in the UK that dyslexia was overrepresented within the prison system. And I actually got really angry about that because I thought that my experience during school and uh, and leaving school and in the workplace and then going back to university was quite unique. I was somebody who had slipped through the net and this, you know, the experience, the poor experience which I had in education, you know, wasn't universal. But this paper illustrated, especially for working class people, uh, actually, this is very much a universal experience. So this led me into a discipline in the UK called disability studies, which I know is now a global, uh, 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 now a global dis discipline. So I was introduced to sociologists writing about disability and the social construction, constructed nature of disability. And that very much influenced my research in criminology. And because of that, I expanded into sociology, into social work, into social care, uh, into psychology as well. Uh, and that very much framed my research. So my research very much looks at the lived experiences of adults in the workplace, outside of the workplace, in the criminal justice system, in social work and social care, you know, and I very much are in, I'm very much interested in people who have experienced extreme forms of deprivation. So I've looked at homelessness, but that's also led us, look, led us into looking at the process of labeling. What does, does dyslexia mean to people in terms of what does that mean in relation to their social identities uh, and their personal identities? Alongside that, because of my research originally started looking at dyslexia and I moved into disability studies then that opened up into looking at really uh, a very much um, uh, you know a new area of disability studies which looks at 
uh, areas of crime and victimization. So alongside uh, my work in dyslexia, I also research in terms of disability hate crime, looking at disability and victimization, and also in terms of the experience of disabled offenders. So in relation to how they face barriers in custody, uh, barriers in the justice system, and also barriers within, within the prison system. So in a sense, that is another area of my research. And alongside that, I've looked at, because of my research in dyslexia, issues of technology, uh, and assistive technology, etc. And I'm looking to work with a team who uh, really are interested in these issues. And although, you know, I have people from different disciplines, sociology, criminology, psychology, they all, in a sense, draw on this environmental approach to think about disability as something which is produced within the environment rather than just the physical body. So I think hopefully that sort of summarised what my, you know, my research. And I'm really excited to talk um, to talk about these topics, particularly because of the the I feel we're caught between a medical and the social model where the medical model says we're disabled and the social model says it's the environment that disables us. So I'm really excited to um, unpack that with you. But before we do that, can you tell um, us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up? Because you've gone through undergrad to master's and then you've got your PhD. So um, how did that evolve for you? Uh... God, sometimes I think by chance, tell you the truth, the, you know, my early experience, I suppose, to give a brief biography in terms of what, what, what where, where I come from. I come from, I, I, I live in the northeast, I grew up in the northeast of England, I grew up in a town called Gateshead, which is just next to Newcastle. So Newcastle, it's basically on the other side of the River Tyne. So you've got Newcastle on one side of the river and Gateshead on the other side of the river. So I grew up in Gateshead and Gateshead is, uh, was not so much now, uh, but was an area of high deprivation. So I grew up in a, uh, in a very work, traditional working class community in the northeast of England. And I grew up in a time where actually heavy industry was starting to disappear from Newcastle and Gateshead. So uh, my father, who actually left uh, us as a family, like many northeast men, uh, worked in the shipyard. When, when the shipyards all were closed down in the northeast, they moved to Scotland and many of them stayed in Scotland. For They moved in employment and stayed it stayed in Scotland and didn't come home uh, and that was the case for many families unfortunately in the northeast and I was one of them. I grew up in a council estate in Gateshead, high unemployment uh, you know at this period of time in the 1980s and in the early 1990s. You know to say that I had a very happy childhood actually growing up in Gateshead. I grew up in a council estate which uh, you know had some great friends there was a great community spirit there, uh, although it was a very poor area. And in a sense, at that point in time, I don't think there was, you know, there was many social problems, but maybe not the social problems which would many many people would expect for an area like that. So, I, 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 you know. For, for the most part, actually, my childhood was happy. My mother, growing up with two sisters, you know, it was a really great experience, actually. I had a very happy home life. At school, you know, I struggled. I wasn't diagnosed during mainstream school with dyslexia. We also have intellectual disabilities uh, in our family. So my mother's sister, uh, who uh, very much was part of the family uh, and still is, uh, she has an intellectual impairment. So in terms of when I was starting to struggle at uh, school, the assumption was that this was probably more linked to, at the time it was described as a learning disability, actually it turns out that my auntie has autism now. You know, she, you know, uh, I, 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 as knowledge was, was very much, uh, it's improved around autism. Uh, you know, she was labeled later on, diagnosed later on in later life as having autism. So the assumption was that, you know, I was failing in education. I was coming from a working class uh, background who have intellectual impairments in the family. So that was probably the issue that it was more to do with intellect rather than something to do with dyslexia. So from a very early age, I went to special needs. You know, I was uh, I attended special needs classes away from uh, my friends. 
uh, you know, I was a disruptive child at school. Uh, I was probably a bit of a nightmare for many of my teachers. Uh, I think I coped with it like many people who I've interviewed. Rather than being somebody who was quiet, I was probably a little bit more disruptive uh, because really I just didn't want to be in a room which were making this, you know, attempt to read, which was embarrassing, which I couldn't do, and also write, uh, which was a real difficulty uh, and spelling, which is always and still is uh, a problem, uh, you know, uh, and there was numerous occasions where I was humiliated in class. So I remember in, in juniors being made to uh, spell my second name out, which I couldn't at that point in time. And uh, and that was, you know, you know, it was uh, a, a, a delight to many of me, 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 me fellow students and friends. So it was uh, one aspect was painful. Uh, in relation to around literacy, but also I also found other, uh, you know, subjects fascinating. History fascinated is, you know, art fascinated is, uh, and I love doing art. So, you know, the literacy aspect I struggled with, and I can say that there was you know, significant difficulties, both in infants, juniors and seniors. But other subjects, although I didn't excel in, uh, because they expect a high literacy level, I actually really loved going to class. I loved listening and I loved taking in the knowledge. Uh, so I wouldn't say that, you know, I totally disengaged with education because I don't think I did. But I very much I, I did. I think I developed a passion for education. But, you know, there was always that element that I was constantly sent throughout my education experience to special needs classes, which was really a holding room for people with multiple issues, behavioural issues, multiple different impairment types. And obviously there was an unknown impairment attached to is that I just wasn't a high, was not a high achiever. So when I left, uh, I was always quite good at maths, actually. Maths was always something which I was good at. And also I still love maths today. So maths was always good. At, and, and the maths teacher was really inspiring, you know, and he's had an big influence on my life. So school was mixed, actually. I, I, I didn't necessarily, there was aspects which were difficult. I really just, despised going to special needs classes but others maths history things like that I really loved going so actually I used to go all the time and I loved play, playing I love seeing my friends and I love sport and so yeah, I have a mixed feeling about education it wasn't all negative but there was negative aspects you know leaving school and also I was disruptive so I imagine many of the teachers you know uh, will, will, will you know will be surprised that I am now working in education <laughs> and I'm sure I really was a pain <laughs> many of them teachers uh so leaving school just briefly and i'll briefly because i realize i can go on so briefly when i left school i it was expected for us to go into, to get a trade so i actually went to and at the time it was these things two year uh yts's and there was this particular yts where you had to pass a test and they linked you up with an apprentice so luckily the test was maths so very little reading and I passed it and I was meant to become a plumber but it turned out because there was another recession there wasn't enough plumbers so basically I was stuck as a labourer and then they give us a bricklaying apprenticeship which I despised and I realised working on site wasn't for me <laughs> and I find it really I found it really dull you know not taken away from many of my friends who work in the building trades so I don't mean to you know uh, but it just was not for me also in my family I had many people who were in the military so and my sister was worked in the RAF and basically uh, the passing the test again in the military was a big problem because it's reading and writing there was expected a level of literacy uh, so luckily my sister had access to the assessments so we went through and I basically memorized what I had to do and I got into the military and uh, and I spent four years in the military and I worked with medical teams in the military uh, and I worked and I was in fifth airborne uh, which was a you know what was seen as a, a, a level of special forces which I was attached to and I and I sort of enjoyed it uh, I enjoyed the sport uh, and uh, but you know I'm not a very masculine sort of person so <laughs> being in the military was almost like I joined the military by mistake, so I knew it wasn't a career for me. But I did enjoy it. I've got some. I got some great friends. Uh, I saw a lot of the world, and it also gives us a lot of life experience. And it also introduced us to the class system, officer class, and the soldier class. And that was that. That, that was very important to us. And thinking about how society was is, is organised through this, this different class system. So it really gives this class awareness, social class awareness going into the military. 
I left the military and because I had done a lot of, I still had significant literacy problems then, I did actually really try to engage with literacy. So I started trying to improve my literacy levels. So I tried to teach myself to read better. So I remember it was in the military, I read my first book, which took us oh God, about a year to go through, but I really persevered to get through. And I think it was Jim Morrison's biography, because uh, I was a big Doors fan, and it took us ages. And and that, and I just kept on trying to persevere, try to read more and more, try to improve my literacy. My writing never truly improved, but my literacy got a bit better during the military. And my skills actually, you know, learning skills in the military was very good and working with the health teams, medical teams. So actually I left and I thought I'm going to become a nurse. And I think, God, you know, so I'd done the pre-nurse, pre-joined nurse course, uh, and I was planning on becoming a mental health nurse, but straight away, obviously, I got in because of my experience in the literacy, experience in the military, but then straight away, it was noted me, the, the, the problems which I was having with my literacy skills, and actually, I had a brilliant lecturer, and within the first couple of months, it was pointed out that she thought I had dyslexia, I went for the assessment, and I did, and straight away, I was put, I got access to education, which really did help us improve me reading and writing, and also, I was in introduced to assistive technologies. Once I was introduced to assistive technologies, everything changed for us. I was suddenly given the tools where I could read and write. I was then, I started really, I excelled in that course. At the end of that course, actually, I decided that nursing wasn't me. For me, I was, well, when I was working out in, 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 uh, in social care, you know, I don't think I really had thought it through and it takes a very unique and dedicated person to be a good nurse. Really was interested in research. So, I basically signed up for a criminology course because on top of that, when I came back from the military, lots of the people who I knew, many, some of them went on to university, but some of them were in the prison system. Some good friends ended up in the prison system. I was really, I didn't understand how that happened. So I actually wanted to find out why that happened. Uh, so I actually took a criminology and social research because I really was fascinated with social research. And it allowed us to study psychology, uh, sociology and criminology. So that was, it seemed like the perfect course. So I'd done a joint honours degree in criminology and social research. And it also had a maths element. So it was less, because I thought I'm always quite good at maths. So there's a big maths element to this. So I'll be all right with that. So that was my first degree. That led straight away onto my master's, which I talked a little bit about when I read that paper on dyslexia. So actually that led us to start researching in the area of dyslexia and young offenders which led us working in social services with young offenders with literacy issues and uh, one of my first projects actually uh, was working with uh, uh, with the young offenders uh, team working with young people with uh, with literacy issues and you these young people I saw were like me really and basically what we did was we assessed them for dyslexia 40% had dyslexia, 60% didn't. And then we put different interventions, interventions which I had just experienced really, you know, four or five years before, which changed my life. And actually what we noted was that people with dyslexia, really it had it improved their they improved their literacy skills to a certain point and then we used assistive technologies for people without dyslexia because they because they had literacy problems because of cultural reasons then actually their literacy were improved more rapidly to the point where actually they you know they could read and write just fine so that was really important so that helped us merge criminology with disability studies uh with uh with my research uh, and then basically this led us on to a PhD. You know, I was at this time really had a fascination with with social research. You know, I had, uh, you know, uh, just and I knew that's what I wanted to do. This was for me. Uh, so I uh, applied for a PhD, and surprisingly, you know, about dyslexia and crime and young offenders, and I was accepted straight away. It turned out actually, my PhD turned out wasn't on that at all it included aspects of a group of offenders but it actually developed into really looking at social theory of dyslexia 
And because of that, it's just as I was entering into my PhD, I actually was watching a programme and somebody who became my supervisor, so I was so lucky, uh, Tom Shakespeare, so Professor Tom Shakespeare, who very much at the time was still advocating for the social model. He critiques the social model now. And I listened to him. And this was such an eye opener for us because being introduced to the social model completely transformed my perception of the people who I was working with and myself, because although I had developed, you know, uh, the skills, I was succeeding in, in education. I had got a degree, which I never thought I would get, and then a master's. And then suddenly I had the confidence to go. And to be honest, every time I took one of them degrees, I didn't think I was going to pass it. I just I thought, I'll have a go at doing a degree. And if it, whatever happens, you know, and then I passed it. And I thought, I'll have a go at doing a master's. And I passed it. And then I thought, well, I'll have a shot at doing a PhD. I probably won't be able to succeed. But, you know, I'll have a go. And I passed. And But at the very beginning, you know, Tom was talking about, you know, this program. He was talking about the social model. And this basically said that, you know, Disability isn't just about biology or neurology, you know, uh, in terms of any, he was really basically described the biomedical model. He says, you know, you know, you know, the public perception at this point in time is that, you know, disabled people can and can't do certain things because of the biologies uh, and that limits their, their, how they interact and what they can do and what jobs they can do. And he said, that's not the case. He says that actually, he said that actually what it is, is this is an environmental factor. It's the environment which actually allows disabled people to do certain things and prevents them from doing certain things. And that made us think, wow, that's really amazing. And that made us go and look at the work of Mike Oliver and Colin Barnes, who were very much at the very beginning formulating the work of Vic Finkelstein and Paul Hunt in terms of creating the social model. And, you know, and, and, and reading Mike Oliver's stuff and Mike Oliver, you know, and this group of wheelchair users who stated in the 1970s and 1980s, you know, the problem wasn't the fact that they couldn't stand up. The problem is that they couldn't get around the house because the way houses were built. They couldn't get around environments the way environments were built. They couldn't get into workplaces because of stairs, etc. You know, assumptions were made what they can and can't do based on their bodies, which are actually con social constructs rather than the reality of what they can and can't do because everything is defined by this ideology of a biomedical model. And for me, that transformed the way I thought about myself. My, with the people who I was working with, me participants, and also dyslexia. So the social model completely. So this basically underpinned my research from this point in time. So basically, that led into my PhD, what was underpinned by models of disability. Uh, and I must admit, I, I don't just stick to the social model. Uh, I use multiple different models, actually, which I think are important. But what I'm thinking about, and especially for the work of offenders, Many of the work which I was looking at uh, during my master's uh, research and early PhD research, and even now, if you look at it, it relates dyslexia with overrepresentation of people in the prison system and links it to signs and symptoms of dyslexia, you know, neurological dysfunctions, which maybe leave people at risk of engaging in, in offender behavior. And that seemed outrageous to me when I was doing that research, that actually the reason why people with dyslexia overrepresented the prison system isn't because they have a neurological divergence or difference or impairment. You know, the reason why they have is because they've experienced extreme forms of deprivation like any other overrepresented group in the prison system. So it's not about biology, it's really about, you know, the structural effects of society, which, you know, excludes and leads people in pathways uh, of exclusion. So in a sense, this is which, you know, these are the ideas which sort of underpin my research. Yeah, I hope that made, made sense. Yes, it did. And I've got so many questions, but being dyslexic, I haven't retained a lot of them. <laughs> I should have been writing them down as you were talking. How do you, I mean, I was thinking as you were talking about the, um, well, I would like to talk to you about how you managed to do your PhD with dyslexia and what assistive technology and supports you put in place. But with the social model of disability, how do you think we can, because you need an assessment to then be able to access funding support or uh, reasonable adjustments in the workplace or things like that. So how is there a way that we can blend both so that it's a nice marriage or do you think we really need to uh, shift to the social model of disability where we don't need an assessment anymore and just the environment changes so we don't have to be adapting all the time? 
Yeah, uh, that is a, a brilliant question. And this is something which straight away, when I started doing my PhD and I switched, started working with Tom and uh, and I switched the focus from just one group to, I thought, well, actually there's no social theory here around dyslexia. Uh, so actually that's the starting point before I start looking at particular groups we need to think about more broadly. So I actually interviewed in my PhD people from, I use social class actually as a, as a framework. So I looked at people from multiple different social class groups to see if they're looking at their experience from disability studies, you know, rather than actually assuming how people live their lives, you know, based on professional knowledge, you know, let's look at uh, how people actually live their lives and lived experiences. Uh, now, first of all, in terms of I realised that the social model almost drifts away from the idea of any form of well, assessment. Although I think Mike Oliver and Colin Barnes have stated that that's not what they state. They say that actually medical intervention can be useful, but, you know, but actually once we leave the clinic, then actually this is in, in a social space. So that's where we have to think about, uh, 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 about disabling barriers. And, and environmental adjustments. So actually, you know, when I was looking at this very much, I thought that we need to take a more micro interactive approach rather than just the broad approach. And I think this is where I, I use the social model when I'm looking at certain things, broad aspects of disability. But I use different models in, in thinking about, you know, when we're looking at the micro and the, uh, and the macro. So, I, you know, I wrote a paper not long ago, actually trying to define, not saying what, you know, define different models of disability and different ideas around dyslexia and I've suggested that maybe there's six there's more than that but I suggested six useful ones uh, and actually you know assessment and diagnosis is vital you know for many of us with dyslexia and I've already described described in uh, in my own biographies I wasn't diagnosed until actually I went to college you know that was late on and actually that diagnosis and I do use the term diagnosis because many people call it labeling assessment I actually don't mind using the term diagnosis diagnosis you know because it is a diagnosis I do see there, there is an impairment effect of dyslexia there is a reality uh, of dyslexia and I see it as a biological neurological reality what, what underpins dyslexia in terms of assessment is vital and I, one of my first papers I wrote off was about this you know how we, can we negotiate you know the importance of, of assessment and diagnosis with actually the social model and, uh, and this structural uh, uh, approach and I think we can so in terms of within my PhD, I developed a critical realist approach, which very much looks at the embodied experience, how the physical body interacts within social space. So rather than a very macro approach, which the social model takes, looking at universal barriers, which affects all disabled people, I wanted to take a micro approach. Well, how does disabled barriers affect people with dyslexia? Yeah, uh, so this was a very interactionist approach. Later on, in terms of, I, I, I've originally referred to this as a critical realist approach. Uh, I, I use a critical realist approach, which you then applied the social model of disability. Uh, I think later on, people have referred to this approach uh, within disability studies as the social relational model. Now, within disability studies, what you've got is, you know, especially Tom Shakespeare started critiquing the social model as being limited because it ignores biology. And I agree with him to a certain extent on that. But actually, you know, I think that actually to work through this, we need to recognise, you know, multiple models of dyslexia uh, and not saying that we will just use one model. Actually, what we can do is use multiple different approaches and critical realist, that, that's a theoretical approach, which I, which I apply, very much allows us to do that. So, for instance, when I'm talking to my students, if you don't mind just giving this example about the different ideas of disability, the idea in terms of the social model versus the medical model, I don't think is very useful. Actually, I think both are useful. So, actually, I see the biomedical model in terms of within a clinical setting is being very useful. Now, I always use an example of actually some which happened to us a few years ago and what medicine does it, it oversimplifies the body through a mean measurement yeah so we've got the fully functional body and everything else you know is really about how the body dysfunctions and the key focus is really about disease so how does disease or injury affect the body yeah and how has it moved away from its mean measurement and how can medical interventions move it back to its mean measurement right now uh, about two years ago, I suddenly got out of bed and, you know, I do a lot of fitness and things like that. And I got a pain in my arm. 
and I've got very mild asthma, but it doesn't usually affect us. But my breathing was really heavy. And I said to my wife, you know, I'm really not feeling good today. And this, she said, you know, ring up, you know, our number four, uh, you know, services, not emergency, we've got another one. I said, you know, I just want an appointment with a doctor. And straight away, they said, we're sending around an ambulance, you know, think you have no heart attack I said no no I'm not I'm definitely not uh you know I'm not old enough to have a heart attack I'm quite fit and I said no no we're sending one round I said well tell you the truth I live next to a, a hospital so let's um, I'm going to go there and it turned out I didn't have a heart attack actually I had a viral infection but it was affecting my body functions so I went there they assessed my body it was no longer functioning the way it was so they looked at me mean measurement they looked at way how, how it moved from me measurement then they put an intervention to remove it back now for me that's very useful because it could have developed into something far more serious that's the beauty of modern medicine and I think that's really successful within a clinical setting when we're outside of a clinical setting, this ideology is often applied to say why disabled people can and can't do certain things in society. And that was, you know, Mike Oliver and Colin Barnes's idea was that actually, you know, Paul Hunt, actually, you know, one of the architects of the social model, you know, he, he said that medical intervention, when he left hospital, offered him nothing. You know what I mean? Except he was living in an institution, except for a system of social control. So we need to think of a better way. And that's what I see. The medical model is very useful within a clinical setting. Outside of a clinical setting, it becomes oppressive because it, because it becomes an ideology while people think about bodies where it shouldn't be used like that. It should just be used within a clinical setting. So the social model offers us something, an alternative. So once we've left medicine, once we've left hospital, our bodies are permanently change or we've been born with different bodies now that's where the social model becomes useful because it looks at environmental factors and structural factors and institutional systems of discrimination uh, and that's where it's very useful to make sure we're included in the workforce to make sure we're included uh, in education uh, to make sure we're included within social life and, and, and deconstruct assumptions and stigmas which are attached around our conditions and I think that's where the social model becomes very useful the problem with the social model is it's too broad because Mike Oliver and Colin Barnes uh, and they you might respond to this and say that I'm misinterpreting them but actually for my interpretation of this is that said impairment isn't important that to create a political movement disabled people all need to come together and I agree with that you know from diff with different impairment uh, uh, different impairments because that gives us a powerful voice but actually on a micro level you know, impairment is important. You know, people with dyslexia experience different barriers from people with, uh, you know, people uh, with bipolar or people uh, who are wheelchair users or people with a hearing impairment. I also have a hearing impairment. So they, they, they experience different barriers. So from a micro level, I think we need to think about how our impairments engage, you know, uh, operate on a day-to-day -day level. Now, this approach is now often referred to the, the, the social relational model. So how the physical body interacts with social environments on a micro level. So this is where I talk about the importance of using the social relational model, you know, looking at particular impairment types and the unique barriers which they experience, which are different from other impairments. And we also alongside that have what what's often referred to as the affirmation model, which is a cultural model, which very much tries to transform the negative understandings of disability and the discourses attached to disability to actually celebrate disability as a minority group. And again, that's very much underpinned by post-structuralist theory. Uh, but actually, I see that as a really useful model. And I see that being used in the Paralympics and et cetera, with the superhuman discourses and the differences and et cetera. So I also see that being useful. It can also cause problems because many of us don't have these superpowers. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's sort of uh, the super disability is often referred to as the super crippling effect. But in terms of uh, but it's also a, a, an important tool. For, so for me, in terms of what we see in terms of these multiple models, and I've only you will refer to, you know, three social models. I've referred to one because we also have the social relational, uh, sorry, the, the, the biopsychosocial model, which is really a clinical model, which is used outside of the clinical setting as a public health system. But again, that can be oppressive for disabled people uh, sometimes but used in the right way if it's used for illness and health then that's important and I think we need to separate health 
an illness from disability where our body's permanently changing. I think that's really important as a movement. And I know that you maybe, I haven't mentioned neurodiversity and the new neurodiverse movement, which is development. And I think it's really useful and it's important. I use, I like the idea that dyslexia is a neurodi, you know, it, it's part of this neurodiverse community that actually this isn't about dysfunction, this is about difference. I've always referred to as difference and variation in my, in my research. The problem is it, where we get to the point where we, I know that members of this community are now saying, let's not call ourselves disabled people at all because disabled, the term disability is a medical label. It's inherently uh, negative. So we're actually closer to uh, other minority populations, such as people from uh, uh, ethnic minority groups or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, sexual minority groups, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and actually there is similarities between us, but actually I think I would argue especially people who I work with, there is always an impairment effect and that always needs to be brought into the, the calculation. Uh, so that what, that's what makes it different from these other communities. There isn't an impairment effect in relation to when we're thinking about, you know, race and ethnicity or sexual orientation, you know, uh, where there is in terms of disability. And also, if we abandon disability, then we remove ourselves from disability, the disability movement and disability mm -hmm. politics. And that's what's made our voice strong on a global scale. So I would say that, you know, I also argue dyslexia isn't just a social construct from a disability is a social construct and dyslexia is a social dyslexia is a, is, is a reality but the experience of dyslexia is socially produced and socially constructed but that's the case for all disabled people and there's a great paper wrote by Nick Watson you know in 2002 and I can't remember the exact title of it but it's something like I don't know about you but I'm not disabled and he looked at people with you know, in the UK, more obvious types of disability, physical impairments, wheelchair users, and none of them saw themselves as being a disabled person. Mm. They all said, yeah, I'm a wheelchair user, but, you know, uh, and sometimes when I, you know, but I run a business, you know, I'm not like what you think about disabled people because the stigma attached to that. So many people don't associate themselves with, all, a, whole, a, with a whole range of impairments. So I think that neurodiversity is a, it's a useful description and it can allow us to construct stigma uh, and, I, and I think it's a useful political movement as well but I would be cautious of separating ourselves from the disability movement. Yeah, Sorry I, I hope I haven't just... No I, I um, concur with you because I feel that the neurodiversity movement even though it's really important and it's getting people talking um, it kind of dilutes the different challenges that we have and, yeah. it, and that, I think that's exactly what you've just said. And I think, you know, we've been looking at developing training in the workforce and um, they want to say, well, everyone's different, the people I've been working with, and we have to accommodate for everyone. I said, yes, that's true, but we have a distinct set of challenges that other people won't have. And so we want to be inclusive of everyone, but we still are going to need a certain amount of assisted technology or uh, reasonable adjustments to help us do our job. And Absolutely. you can't pull that apart, even though everyone wants to be inclusive of every difference, yeah. you actually have to treat those impairments, disorders, whatever you'd like to call them, disabilities, yeah. as unique as well. And then it's how do we bring us all together to appreciate yeah. the um, diversity within a workforce as well. Yeah, because I think even using the term impairment in terms of, I don't think, see, that is such a problem in relation to, because impairment, yes, in a clinical setting, in terms of, because they're thinking about changes, changes to the body, you know, we're going through a global pandemic. So in terms of the biomedical model is very useful in terms of in this clinic, in clinical settings for trying to treat COVID. So they're looking at changes, sudden changes within these clinical settings. But actually, once our bodies are changed permanently, you know, we no longer need to think about impairment as a neurological, biological dysfunction. We can see it as a variation, you know, a natural variation. So it draws on to the same arguments in relation to what the neurodiverse movement actually uh, is trying to achieve. Uh, and, I, and I celebrate that because, I, you know, if you look back right the way back, I've always replaced dysfunction 
with variation or difference. Uh, but actually, we do need to recognize how our bodies are different and how they interact in different ways. So I don't have a problem saying that, you know, I think, I don't know if you've asked, have you asked this the question in terms of how did I pass my PhD and I haven't answered that question. Uh, what about technology? I was going to go on to that one, right? So, so I've got multiple different examples in terms of how, you know, I use uh, assistive technologies to, you know, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, which, you know, I have to, but, you know, and I, and I conceptualize that as an alternative writing style, but people without dyslexia can use assistive technologies and they can read and write without them. Uh, they've got, you know, the choice where from my experience and many of the people who I work with, and I, I do admit I'm working with people who experience significant difficulties. I do, I have worked with successful, I hate the word successful, you know, people who have achieved from a neoliberal perspective, uh, you know, high, you know, they're running businesses and, uh, and they're medics and they're surgeons and, uh, you know, uh, so uh, dyslexia hasn't been such an issue. So in, you know, but so I'm, I do work with them, but I work more with excluded groups. So I do see in terms of the, 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 the impact dyslexia has, you know, within these groups and within my own life as well. Uh, and so I do think that there's it, it, we do have to think about how our bio how our bio how our bio how our neurologies how our bodies uh how dyslexia makes us different uh, and that's really important if that makes sense yes it does and it's been fascinating to listen to your research um and i could talk to you all night about it especially <laughs> because as i mentioned earlier before we started the interview that one of my papers is looking at looking at social construct and labels and superpowers versus disability yeah. but um moving on from your research and you've just started to touch on it but how do you manage day-to-day -day? so how for if we've got our listeners that are doing a doctorate or phd which we're getting more and more people coming to us saying they are that are dyslexic yeah. you know what are some of the suggestions you might have for them around how they could manage or what it, what were some of the things that you put in place to help support you I think, first of all, just I know, and I, I know that you already know this, and I think all your listeners already know this, but dyslexia is experienced differently by multiple different people. So it's hard for us, and especially with many, many of the, the, the groups I work with, you know, I'm working with people with significant literacy issues. So I work with many, you know, I'm not the only person in my my team who has dyslexia, but we are affected in different ways. Uh, so my experience uh, uh, of dyslexia, as I've already described, you know, my reading and writing is affected. Uh, my speech is affected. Actually, I very rarely do that many interviews because I am always conscious about using words out of context, getting word, getting word blocks, etc. It does affect my speech uh, and organisation. If I didn't use assistive technologies, I would, uh, I wouldn't be, I would struggle to do the job which I do. Uh, but then, people without dyslexia also have these issues as well. So, in terms of, uh, first of all, the biggest issue would be probably spelling. My children now are uh, my nine-year-old uh, and my twelve-year-old are probably you know you don't want to drift into a deficit approach probably better spellers than what I am you know right from the start uh and I've had now lots of I've, I've tested out different interventions on myself to see if this if I can improve you know because you know, I'm a researcher and I'm interested in this area so does this work is this a and it, and it unfortunately hasn't so spelling is something which just has never improved so I've always you know I used the early forms of dragon dictate and I and at the very beginning doing my degree you know and dragon was so bad then you know I got every other word wrong but it was the way that I could write assignments I developed a writing style around that. Now, what I didn't use from the very start, which really cost us in my degree, was read-write software. I was given it, but like many students, I didn't see the need of it, and I was just dictating and then trying to read back. Although, as I know that when I read text, I read it maybe in different in the different order than what it is on the page, so I can write a sentence or dictate a sentence, and then. I read the sentence and it's perfect. And then I listen to it and I realise that actually <laughs> I've got it the wrong way around and the commas don't make sense, etc. So I just assumes that it's saying something. <laughs> I still say to my mum sometimes, I'm like, are you sure I'm dyslexic? I'm sure I'm getting better. And then she'll say to me, sorry, darling, but it's not getting better. <laughs> oh, <laughs> 
actually that's absolutely correct that's exactly what happens as well sometimes i think that as well yeah this is drifting but yeah so that's so basically a combination in terms of me writing so as i got better uh, what i do is and now i do every first draft dictate because really what i do is i very much um, i can you know this this you know i know this might drift into the positive aspects of uh of this dyslexia maybe it is maybe it's not i don't know but i often can't picture i do think in pictures when i'm doing research i can visualize you know a story stories are really important to is the narratives which are appearing uh both statistically and uh and from a qualitative because i use mixed methods so very much i visualize and think about what is the overall story here so to get that story down i use dictate software and i dictate everything so the books the papers uh the research reports which i've done quite a lot of actually uh and i'm very proud of doing that that's not a brag i'm very proud of just because you know by the time I, when i was 18 i could very re, i had very restricted reading and writing skills i would never envisage that this would be what i would be doing doing as a job using this technology was a, was, was almost liberating i could get me ideas down and so now what I what I started doing in my PhD, and this is where I really started defining my writing skills. So I dictate, and I still use this technique, I dictate everything and get me ideas and just pour them down. And that's what I did in my PhD. Now I take a little bit of a more of a structured approach. So I will think of the story and put headings, and then I fill in the spaces, and then I move them headings around because usually they're not in the right order. Because how I think of it isn't really, I, we need to think about, you know, uh, the neuro, how the neurotypicals read. So when you have the order, so everybody else understands it. So, uh, <laughs> so basically, in terms of so now that's what I do, and then I fill in with dictate, and then what I do is I read over and then make changes and type. I read over and make some minor ones which I spot where the dictate's got it wrong, and then I listen, and then that's where I also type and change when I'm going along but sometimes I need to turn my dictate back on if I've made and I have to add an, an extra section so then I'll dictate and then it'll be an interaction between dictate and then make minor changes typing but I'm listening every sentence right the way through and then I add me references if I haven't already done so and then I basically listen to the story and then the last listen is really thinking about the order of things am I starting off with a story is the story clear at the beginning and it does it follow uh, progression and have I got my key points across and have I included all of the narratives and I've got a very good memory of well when people are telling us their stories I can always remember them stories so that's great so then I can go back in and get the right and then also I can think about how they relate to if I've done a statistical research to the larger barriers the, you know what people are, are, are experiencing and then I can link it to the statistics and that's basically my writing style so it's a really you know it, it very much using and I would argue that you know this is and especially we're trying to use this writing style uh, and this hasn't just been developed with me. One of my ex-students, which I mentioned, who is a social work practitioner, also uses this technique and uh, she's using it out in the field uh, in social work practice and set up her own service. And I see this is a really useful writing style because it's really people bring people's on writing, people's writing styles. So that's the writing style which I used in my PhD. And that's the writing style I've wrote. Uh, written every paper and book which I've ever done so that's the process I go through I'm going and to I, that process but how long I, I don't think I have the patience to do that I'm very lucky where I have a, a human editor to help and so yeah. my auntie sits with me while I write my papers and I'll talk to her and then she'll help me word it yeah, yeah. So, I do use the edit at the very end so yeah. for instance what I found was when I'm submitting a paper was constantly coming back but what I see is really minor issues you know the odd comma in the wrong place and you know uh, but you know what publishers are like they are very you uh -huh. know yeah you know so you know I do often it's not really an editor anymore but maybe I, I've used that less and less now as I've developed my own style so often now I'm really chuffed when it comes back with just a couple of commas in the wrong place so I, I still sometimes I still really get things just a final draft proofread just to make sure and now in the minor things now and that didn't used to be so for anybody who's starting to publish and it comes back and they're not that is fine that's exactly what it was like 
for me and you get used to because publishing papers when you finish your PhD is a different writing style from your PhD but you get used to it and uh, you know uh, uh, and you've just got to keep on doing it and and get used to the rejections as well we all get rejected constantly all what you do is change the make the corrections and submit it to another another journal and that's fine it happens to everybody it happens to me uh, still today and uh, you know in terms of so and that's a reality and that happens to people without dyslexia as well so we shouldn't be put off by that so but for me that, yeah it will get published and it's a pain in the backside in terms of when it gets sent back to you think about what they are saying I always think about how clear my writing is and then maybe I need to clarify something maybe I need to think about the order of something and then correct that points if they're relevant if they're you know if they're criticizing it because I don't like it theoretically then just move on but in terms of because I often think that that does improve your papers and then as it went on I get less and less rejection, but at the very beginning, I got a lot of rejections. So, but I'm drifting off into the back of the PhD in relation to, you know, in terms of the PhD. So that's how I developed my writing style. And the more I used read write software, the better my writing style got. And actually the clearer and clearer my story became and the better I got at publishing journal articles. So I, I used it not as much as I should have in my PhD, but as my career developed, I've used it more and more. And I would say that's one of the most significant pieces of software. In my degree, I never used it at all, but it really has changed my writing style using both uh-huh. rather than just one. And also reading. I, I read for fun, physically read with a book. Uh, I read for fun in bed usually you know uh reading novels etc and i think that's important because it was such an achievement which i described when i read my first book so i still like to read with a physical book often an ipad as well because it makes it easier because i can enlarge the words etc and change the, the you know in, in change the, the the font sentence and things like that but still i still like to read it with a physical book uh but actually for work and I realised in the PhD that I really struggled keeping up with the amount of literature which I had to read. So because of that, what I did was I started, I first of all at the time, it wasn't as easy as what it is now, but I ordered in audio books, which I had to order in because uh, it was people for people with you know visual impairments. Uh, so I started using them, it took us ages and it was really clunky. But then as technology developed, you know, we've got audio, you know, and we can all access it. I set me me uh, iPad to do this. So at work now I listen to everything. So I listen to journal papers, books, uh, everything, uh, students work, because that allows us to process information quickly. Because if I was to physically read that, it would take us too long. You know, uh, I, I now have to assess PhDs. Now PhDs are sometimes 100,000 words. So, you know, to that would take us a month to read and I've got a, you know a week to assess a PhD so it, now I can listen to a PhD and I've got very good at that and uh, 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 and uh, I can do that in three and a half days uh, which maybe is I don't know if that's longer or, or, or quicker than some of my colleagues I, I don't think I've ever asked them actually uh, but that's how long it takes us three and a half four days to, to mark a PhD now by listening to it and I've realized that actually I listen to more and more and I think that just speeds everything up you know I can process because now I'm working on maybe three projects at a time so I'm reading three different sets of literature so I have to listen to that and I I can do it quite quite quickly and I think my work rate is probably I have probably a higher work rate than many of my colleagues so it's not that I'm keeping up with colleagues using these these techniques I would it's not really for me to say it's for my colleagues to say this but you know my workload is is up there you know and I I do I, 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 I became quite skilled at doing research writing papers getting papers published at quite a quick pace so uh and i think so for me this is a unique writing style and reading style uh and 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 we are going to see stigma i'm already i went to a paper the not long ago and uh with a linguistic talking about the loss of the the skill of writing and how terrible people are starting to dictate and listen and you know what does that mean to and i said suggest what you're you know 
this is you, you, you this is a you're, you're presenting a dated view based on dated technology you know a pen and a physical book you know we've got advances in technology so what because of advances in technology we've got new the, the development of new writing styles so all what you're seeing here is a new writing style and you're missing the point here so we are probably going to see a backlash on this in terms of stigma but i think we should be i think some of my colleagues would maybe be a little bit wary on saying well actually i do dictate and yes i do listen to read I do use read and write and I dictate all my emails and I'm very open about this because I think we need to challenge and deconstruct that stigma. I don't think my writing is any less than somebody else's writing who physically wrote it with a pen. So that's that, that that's my writing styles. We've um, evolved as how we've written. If you look at you know hieroglyphics and yeah. how we've moved yeah. to pen and paper. So um, you know this is the new way and the new era. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe we're leading. Maybe we're leading the way in oh. terms of what we're going to write and we'll what we'll, we'll develop into. And I think that's a positive thing rather yeah. than a negative thing. Uh, so you know, so I do see this as a is a different new writing style which we're now developing. And I think that should be celebrated rather than hidden. You know, and I've also seen. So when I walk into a meeting now, and I've got emails, obviously not confidential emails, but I'll walk in a meeting and people are, you know, because everybody's really busy and that entering the emails before the meeting starts. So I will go in and I'll have on my phone me, me, and I'll dictate my email and send it off. Uh, and I do it all the time, wherever I am. Uh, it sometimes drives me my, my, mad, actually. <laughs> so I'll just flow, you know, throw off emails. And now, now I've noticed, actually, within my group in my school, people have started doing that. They were, who haven't got dyslexia or literacy issues it's just a really quick way and effective way of firing off emails so now when i'm starting to see when i go to meetings lots of people are using that, that, that and i think that's great isn't it and i think also especially for emails as you as we create develop i think people are used to work colleagues if i'm sending an important email obviously i'll listen to it before i send it out but i certainly don't do that anymore with what i used to but it takes too long so what i do is just fire them off that's sometimes a little bit muddled my colleagues have all got used to it <laughs> In the world. <laughs> well, Stephen, thank you so much. We've been talking for, um, it's been great talk, learning about your research and how you've applied it to dyslexia. And I'd love to have you on the show again to talk further if you're happy to do more interviews, particularly on your disability and hate crime and online disability hate speeches. I'd love to um, learn more about that and if dyslexia is part of that cohort that you're looking at because um, so many people I know are fearful of being on social media because of abusive bad spelling or so and um, disability as a hate crime is a really fascinating topic for me so I'd love to be able to explore that further with you at some point. Yeah, I'm more than happy uh, to talk about that and by all means come on and also in terms of yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk about when the interview finishes, but I'm, I'm happy to uh, share any papers with you in your group. And, uh, uh, and if I can be of help of any way, just please, please let us know. That would be wonderful. I've written down a lot of different papers that you've mentioned and it's the way that you structured and how you, you write your papers has made me think how I really need to try and um, look at a different process to my old ways, which aren't the best. But also I feel slightly guilty that I haven't used my read and write technology and I really need to start improving um, rather than relying on human beings, which has been my habit since I was in secondary school, to use more technology. Just on that point, I don't want to, I think people will develop their own strategies, so I don't want to suggest my strategies is the correct strategy to use. I think that it's just how I do it, and that might be useful to some people, and it mightn't be. So that please don't think that, that you know, when I'm describing this a process, it might work for you, it mightn't, it just works for me. But one last thing, actually, which I really think is a real celebration in terms of where well, I think politically as a dis person with dyslexia, uh, as a dyslexic person, uh, yeah, you know, and now in terms of train people to write academic papers. And I think that's so wonderful in relation to having, you know, 
a per, an academic with dyslexia talking about how to structure people's stories and write papers is so wonderful. So it really does show that. It really annoys us when people suggest, well, you know, how do you do that because you can't read and write? Uh, well, actually, we can. We just use different technologies and we've got such a unique writing skill, writing, you know, ability to write stories, which actually should be celebrated. And I think the more we do, and, I, 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 and we, you know, we need to remember that as PhD, you know, people impeached, getting a PhD was the most important thing in my life because something which I never thought I would achieve, more important than anything else what followed. And we also need to be very open in terms of politically because we're leading the way in relation to, you know, deconstructing the stigma which is often attached to people who will never even get to university. So I think that's important. Uh, and I know it's difficult because of the, 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 the because of issues in the workforce. But, you know, from my point of view, that's why I always try to do things like this to, to try to challenge and to try to get people to think about dyslexia in different ways. Now, hopefully that came across in this interview. Uh, it's been inspirational and it just, it makes me, um, excited and renewed energy for my research and how I can help add to the body of work that you're doing. So I really, really appreciate your time. It's been just so exciting learning and, you know, your story is inspirational to, you know, not be able to read at 18 and then to do the work you're doing now just shows our listeners that, you know, we can do it with, as we say, with the right tools in place and the right support. But maybe this is a hub where we can start sharing our work with each other because we can learn off each other as in terms of our own unique writing style. I've developed one writing style. I'm sure many of you, yourself and many of your listeners are also developing their unique writing styles. And maybe we should share our work with each other so we've got access to it all. And then we can start really thinking about and unpicking this and, and looking at what may, is there something unique about what we're doing? Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I'm hoping that this year we'll be able to start doing something like that. So thank you so much for your time today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Please stay safe in uh, England with what's happening at the moment. You know, But I just really appreciate your time and just have learned so much tonight. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Stephen and his work, head to deardyslexic.com. Don't forget to keep an eye out for our PhD support group that we have established with Dr. Judith Hudson. And we're so excited that Stephen will also be supporting this initiative. Did you know we now have a new live Q&A series called Question Dis, D-Y-S, created during COVID to help our community feel more connected. Each month, I interview a fellow dyslexic about all things dyslexia and life. The Question Dis series is running through Facebook Live. I really hope you can come along and join us for one of these sessions. If you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we do at the Foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there is anything you have heard today that was distressing, please call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. If there is a topic you would like discussed on the show, please email us, admin at dyslexic.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.